When we finally got down to something which the individual says he really wants to do, I will say to him, you do that. And uh, forget the money. Uh, because if you say that getting the money is the most important thing, you will spend your life completely wasting your time. You'll be doing things you don't like doing in order to go on living, that is to go on doing things you don't like doing, which is stupid. Better to have a short life that is full of what you like doing than a long life spent in a miserable way. Today we got a special guest on the pod. Uh, it's his first podcast, but I'm sure he's going to kill it. Um, so, you know, without further ado, we have Jamal Liz Simmons on the podcast. Welcome to Footwork, Jamal. What's up, guys? Thanks a lot for having me, man. Yes, first time on a podcast, but uh, <laughs> excited to uh, to see what you guys are all about over here. Awesome. Pleasure to have you. Now, Jamal, we might as well start off. It only seems fitting. Um, where does upstate New York start? <laughs> I love that question. Um, for me, I would say upstate New York. I'm gonna say anything above Kingston is upstate New York. Okay, and I got, can you I got one on my team, baby? <laughs> and can you describe where That's Kingston, what New York, is for people that don't know? Yeah, so I'm uh, so I'm in like Highland New Paltz area. So I'm about probably an hour and a half north of the city. So I'd say Kingston's a solid two hours north of the city. There we go. All right, people. So here you go. I think, I think that's pretty fair. You know, I, I think me. it's a. I mean, looking looking at a map, it makes sense. Maybe I'm a little biased on this, but I think I think Jamal's spot on there. I mean, I can't disagree with him, <laughs> but you know, some people beg to differ. Well, I love, I, love, I love talking to all the people that are from the city or like Long Island because they consider upstate like anything north of the Bronx. That's Sean. So I'm not I'm not in a, I'm not on that team at all. Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of that's kind of my team. But oh, that's Sean, you said? <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a Massapequa kid. So Long Island guy. There you go. There you go. Understandable. Um, but, I, but I get where you're coming from. So, so Jamal, so for the people who don't know you, could you give us a little, just a quick blurb about your background, where you've played, you know, growing up maybe, and then, um, you know, where you're at in your career right now as far as soccer? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm from the Hudson Valley area, um, grew up between kind of Highland, New Paltz, Poughkeepsie area. Um, I graduated from Highland High School. Um, after that, I went up to uh, SUNY Albany. Um to play soccer up there, played up there for two years, had a pretty good experience there, um, but had a little bit of a little bit of a falling out with the coach um, after those first two years, ended up coming home, uh, kind of just fell into a natural routine of, you know, needing a job and working and things along along those lines. Um, started working at an after school program for a good couple years, uh, eventually kind of got my Decided to go back to school. Ended up at SUNY New Paltz uh, to finish my years of, uh, of eligibility there. So I played my last two years there. Um, and um, from there, um, went into coaching at SUNY New Paltz. I was the assistant there for, uh, for four years uh, before landing my first head coaching job with uh, SUNY Ulster Community College, uh, where I've been now. I just completed uh, my fourth season there. And, um, and yeah, and with Stockade, you know, uh, was able to play for them for the first uh, three years uh, since the club started. And then, you know, I've been the head coach there um, for the last year. Um, so that kind of brings, brings us to where we're at now, you know, uh, played a couple different other tournaments and leagues and stuff like that. Did some Empire State games when those were going on a few years back. Um, but Right now, you know, very comfortable kind of w with where I'm at um, in terms of in terms of kind of my soccer career. I, I love my job with Ulster. Um, you know, Ulster is a, a program that has a lot of a lot of history, back-to-back uh, -back national championships back in the 70s. And uh, the program nearly fell apart recently. So that's been kind of a project to kind of get it back to a respectable program. So I, I love my time working there. And uh, my time with Stockade has been amazing, you know, working with some real high high quality players from the area and, you know, looking to really put Kingston on the map. So uh, I'm in a good spot right now, you know, feeling good with, uh, with where I'm at professionally um, and just, you know, continuing to look to uh, look to improve. Just to take it a step back to uh, your coaching at New Paltz, 
So for those of you who don't know, I, I'm um, very familiar with Jamal. I played under him at Stockade and played with him at Stockade. So was both a teammate and a player under his coaching. Um, when we were setting up this episode, I was telling Sean your name and your background and everything. And um, he looked you up, saw your picture and goes, hey, he, he coached at, he coached at Newport. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so Jamal had the, yes, Jamal uh, had the pleasure of coaching against us when yeah. Sean and I played at Oneonta. The, the, the unfortunate pleasure, if you want to say. <laughs> that was going to be my question because I wasn't sure. So, Sean, you, play, you played at Oneonta as well. Yeah, the same class is done. Oh, you guys were the same class. Okay, okay, gotcha. Because yeah. your name, it just wasn't a name that I remember. I, I knew Dylan's name a little bit as well from kind of just being a local, mm -hmm. you know, a local high school player. Um, but, yeah, man, I, I don't want to talk too much about those New Pulse Oneonta games. You guys definitely got the best of us those four years. So hats <laughs> off to you guys on that. But I, I'm, I'm not going much further into that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fair enough. That's fair enough for sure. Now, um. Now, Jamal, you raised an interesting point about the uh, the SUNY Ulster job and it being a project. Um, I think that's a you know a huge thing as a coach is you know you're not always, as you said with Stockade, you you have the pleasure of coaching you know some great dynamic talent. And I'm sure there is at Ulster, but it's probably a little different on, on your approach. Can you go into you know what you kind of have to have to do in order to build this program up? Yeah. Um, and it really has been, you know, it's really been kind of starting from scratch. You know, when I first took over the team, um, they had the, the season before I took over, I think they just made it through the season. I think they had to forfeit their last game of the season, last game or two of the season. So they were in a really tough spot. So for me, it was, I knew it was going to be a challenging situation. Um, but I also looked at it, you know, as a great opportunity. Um, you know, like I said, I was able to learn a ton from Gene Ventrigli at New Paltz. He, uh, really gave me the opportunity to be hands-on in kind of all facets of a program um, and what it takes to build and run a quality program. So for me, it was, you know, trying to instill all of those things at Ulster um, from the ground level. Uh, we really, we struggled those first two years, uh, you know, I was as I was trying to kind of make a good name for the squad and, and get some quality players in. Uh, we struggled the first two years, but I think after, you uh, after kind of getting the getting the word out there and showing some guys, you know, what what our vision and our goal was for the program, uh, we were able to bring in some local talent um, and we've been able to take steps forward uh, each of the last four years. You know, we, we qualified for the conference championship the last two seasons, uh, unfortunately came up just short. But um, we feel like, you know, we're a couple pieces away to make that happen. Um, we put some players on all conference, you know, the last couple of years we had the player of the year last year. So we're definitely moving in the right direction. And for me, it's been fun because it's really been looking at every element of the program and trying to get it and trying to increase it and trying to get it to a level of respectability, a level where uh, especially local players are looking at it as a viable option uh, to help them get to their goals. Because, you know, there are there's obviously there is a lot of talent here in the Hudson Valley for sure. Like I said, I've been here my whole life and there's always been talent here and there are that kind of cream of the crop players that can play, you know, at the D1 level or some high D2, D3. Uh, but for other players, you know, they need a community college. They need something, you know, to kind of help them continue to develop and be a stepping stone. So that's what we're looking to do at Ulster. I think um, I think we're on the path to making that happen. And um, again, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what see how this pandemic thing um, kind of mm -hmm. plays out over these next couple of weeks and months to see uh, to see how our season will potentially look for the fall. For sure. And now, can you give us some insight into how, you know, what goes into building a program like that kind of from scratch, like you said, because it, you know, a lot of it does depend on recruiting. So, you know, getting certain players in. And of course, then once you have players on the team, you can develop them, you know, in your own way, however long you have at them. You know, community college, generally, they're not there for as many years as you would at a, a regular um, college. You know, what are some things that you've had to deal with or have looked to you know, something that was really lacking in the program that you really started yeah. to hone in on. Yeah. So I, I, I missed a little bit of the end, end of what you said, but I think I got the gist of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, from day one, when I took over my first uh, the first goal, it is the recruitment is the biggest thing, you know, at any any level of college. So 
I wanted to try to create as many uh, local connections as I could. So for me, I literally, you know, took my first couple of weeks with the job and I was just, uh, I was, I was reaching out to connects, looking online, trying to get every local coach's contact information. So all of the local high schools, all of the local clubs, um, and really just reaching out to them, letting them know who I was. Um, and again, kind of communicating to them the vision uh, that I saw for Ulster and how I thought that it could potentially, you know, impact some of their players. So the recruitment was definitely the biggest thing, getting the name out, letting people know that Ulster was a viable option for them to continue their, you know, their soccer career. Um, and then from there, you know, it was working with uh, working with the staff at Ulster, you know, uh, Matt Brenny, my athletic director, uh, I'm fortunate to have a good relationship with. We actually went to high school together. Uh, he was a couple years older than me. Um, but he was one of the standout local athletes growing up who I really looked up to. So it was cool to uh, to be able to work for him at Ulster um, and have the support of him and, and the support of the athletic department of kind of of what our vision was, you know, to try to get this program back to a respectable level. So it would have been I think I would have had a lot more obstacles had I not had, you know, a very supportive um, athletic director and department and department. But with their support. Um, not to say that it's been easy, but, uh, it's, uh, it's good to have people around you who can see the vision and who can kind of help add to it and can give you some insight and kind of help you where you're struggling. So we feel like we're moving in the right direction. You know, I'm, I'm excited about what the future holds. Like I said, I think every year we've taken a few more steps in the right direction. So, um, excited for what, uh, for what the future has for Ulster for sure. That's yeah, awesome, man. And, and how, how long do players stay there? You know, what is the, the length of like how long, how much time do you have with these players before they move on? Yeah. So also, so it's a junior college, so it's only two years. Um, and that's really been what I've recognized throughout these first four years is that's been the challenge, you know, is really the turnover from year to year um, is really, really tough. Um, and, you know, given a lot of the local, a lot of the demographics of students here, you know, a lot of them. Um, in addition to having their academic responsibilities in school, a lot of them um, are working full time, part time, you know, doing things to, you know, help their family at home. So there's lots of different challenges that we do encounter. But, um, you know, I think I think so far we've done a pretty good job with it of being flexible where we need to, but also, you know, getting them to understand that uh, that this is going that we, we want to take this, you know, as serious as possible. You know, it's, it's just, it's the weird adage that I still work with at community college where a lot of, especially students coming out of high school, they look at community college almost as like, like 13th grade. They think it's not even really college. And I think athletic wise, sometimes it gets the same rap. You know, they think that it's not really uh it's not like real college sports. And it's um a lot of that is just a mindset to get them to kind of understand it. And it's usually, I've seen kind of that rude awakening for players who come in and think, oh, you know, I'm going to be able to just step on the field and just do the things I did in high school. And uh, they find out, you know, very, very early on that while this isn't, you know, a D1 or, uh, or you know, a, a huge program, that it's college soccer. And, uh, you know, they're going to have to, uh, you know, have a level of, of seriousness about it, you know, in order to really be successful. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. I think the um, the transition is the, is the biggest thing. I know uh, Sean and I both dealt with it and then dealt with it when we went into the semi and professional game. But from you, for you, you had a big transition going um, from player to coach. And I know you still got some left in you. You could definitely still be playing a little bit. But um, can you go into that transition a little bit? I'm sure it was, you know, very difficult, but um, just kind of touch on on what it was like to transition to a coach and see, you know, the game from the other side of the field. Yeah, for sure. It was, um, you know, like I said, it was the Stockade experience was, was just something that was really special for me having, you know, my college days were done and I was, you know, getting up in age a little bit, especially in terms of, in terms of a uh, soccer age and kind of your soccer leg. So, when this opportunity presented itself, you know, I, I did everything I could to uh, to get my body, you know, in the best shape possible to compete with all these, you know, young legs that were going to be coming at me. And I had it was really one of the best experiences of my life uh, to be able to play for Stockade, you know, in my home kind of community, um, lifting that trophy in 2017, you know, in front of, mm-hmm. you know, close to 1300 people was something really special that I'll, that I'll never forget. Definitely a highlight of mine as a player. Um, 
I was fortunate, um, you know, through those three years of being a player, like I'd said, I was named club captain. So I, I had a leadership role on the team. Um, I felt like I was able to establish some good relationships um, with the players and with the coaching staff. So that definitely helped the transition um, for sure. Um, having those relationships, be able to, you know, have conversations with guys preseason leading up into the season and really even throughout that was kind of a continuation. You know, I'm a pretty uh, vocal person when it comes to training and games. So the, the vocal aspect of it was something that I think was was able to kind of be be consistent with um, the actual the actual physical part was tough, man, because, it's uh, you know, it, it's almost like that adage as a soccer player. It's like and even now, you know, I feel like my brain is as sharp as it's ever been, but like physically my physical capabilities are not equal to where my, to where my mental spot is now. And that's the tough part, you know, to feel mentally sharp and to feel like I'm seeing things and I can recognize things on the field um, that I didn't always recognize and still being mentally sharp, but then, you know, physically recognizing that, damn, this is a, a little, a little more difficult. You know, I'm not closing space the way I once to once, once was able to. Um, So that's a challenging thing that I think a, a lot of players go through as they're kind of as their playing days kind of come to a come to some sort of closure because um, they do. I think players feel sharper as they get older. You know, you, you're more experienced with the game and you understand it more. Um, so trying to find that balance, I think, is what is uh, is what I think, you know, the ultimate players are really trying to strike that balance of mentally being extremely sharp and also having the physical capability to kind of match that. Yeah, absolutely. Trying to find the balance between the both of those, and now, what what has your what has been your inspiration to become a coach? Have you coached, you know, as a young kid, and it's always kind of been part of your life, or you know, as you grew older, it is something that you found that you really enjoyed. Yeah, well, you know, sports has been with me forever. Um, I've been, uh, you know, a three sport athlete between soccer, basketball, and baseball, uh, pretty much since I could walk. You know, I asked. I asked my parents for my first soccer ball, I think just before I was two years old and still don't know how that came about, where I saw saw a soccer ball, how that happened. But yeah, I got my first soccer ball by the time I was two and it's been with me ever since, you know, and uh, my first coach for sure, whether it was soccer, basketball, baseball or really anything was uh, was my father. You know, he's a uh, he's been a main influence for me as a player and as a coach, but his his competitive nature um and how he instilled that competitive drive in me i think is something that uh has really been the backbone of of my entire sports existence you know uh from a very early age i can still picture my father telling me um you know that if you want to be the best you got to beat the best you have to look to play the best competition and you know just quick story my father used to work at uh at a facility called the San Cabrini home. And it was really a facility for like, for, um, for teens and adolescents who were having some, you know, having some, some difficulties, whether it be in school. So it's kind of a, kind of a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it was a place for, for, for juvenile delinquents. They were there, um, kind of before prison to be totally honest, you know what I'm saying? As a place to kind of rehabilitate them and try to help get them back into their districts and things like that. So my dad worked there for over 25 years and I was, um, he, I would actually go to work with him from time to time when I was younger and, uh, you know, different field days and there was always a basketball court there. So we were always playing. And now mind you, the, I'm probably, you know, eight, nine, 10 years old, and these kids could be in there as early as, you know, 14, 15 years old, some of them. And um, the basketball court was always crowded with people. And from a young age, you know, my dad was always just like, go get on the court, you know, like go play. And when I and I was little and young and I was nervous and these kids were all bigger than me. And he, and he was he was very he was very adamant with like, look, the basketball you play with at home, that's the same size ball they're playing with. The hoop that you play with at home is 10 feet high, just like the hoop they're playing with. And hmm. he was like, it's no different. Uh, so that that adage of, you know, you can play this game anywhere you want and just look to compete and go as hard as you can. Um, that's the thing that stuck with me. Um, and that's the thing that I think I try to incorporate um, 
not only when I was a player, but now as a coach to try to really instill that confidence in my players that, look, I, I don't care who we're playing, you know, for that day, we're going to give it our best shot and let's see what we got. You know, uh, it's funny. So when, at SUNY Ulster, again, of the smaller junior colleges, uh, we actually play uh, Monroe College, which is the number one junior college in the nation. You know, they won the national title last year. And uh, for some people, you know, they come in and, and they look at, you know, us having to play a team like that. And they're they're really, you know, intimidated by even getting on the field with them. And for me, my mindset is, wait a second, we, we get to play the number one ranked team in the nation. They're on our schedule. Well, you know, that's the game that we're Hell circling. Yeah. That's the that's the one right. that we want to try to do everything we can. And we don't need to beat them, you know, 99 times out of 100. But if we could get them that one day. You know, that's the the thing that we strive for. So that level of competitiveness, I think, was was instilled in me from my father at a very, very young age. Um, and it's the thing that I think allowed me to still compete into my late 30s with all these young college kids was really my mental was my mental makeup. You know, my mental my mental uh, ability to try to to try to uh, to get through things. And it's the thing that I try to instill in my players as well. That's awesome. And, and let's, let's stay on this topic now. Has there been an individual athlete that has really been an inspiration for you or even a coach other than your father? Like any pro athlete that you really looked up to as a kid? It could be, you know, a soccer player. Or like you said, you played basketball and baseball as well. Yeah, for me growing up, it was, um, you know, Jordan was really everything. You know, I, uh, I was in high school. Uh, I graduated high school in 2000. So 96 to 2000, I was in high school. And you know, to be able to live through some of those Jordan years. Jordan was, uh, he was the God, you know, I mean, he was the guy, he was the person that we all emulated and wanted to be like. Um, so recognizing kind of his dominance within basketball, uh, those were, those were some of the characteristics that I wanted to, you know, that I tried to emulate no matter what sport we were playing. Obviously, soccer, um, was not at the scale that it was now, you know, when I was growing up. Um, so it was a lot of basketball. It was a lot of – Jordan was really the main one to say. Um, and soccer mm. was really kind of later on um, in terms of really recognizing some players and things that I tried to emulate myself after. Um, you know, I'm a huge Arsenal fan, so uh, watching Thierry Henry uh, early 2000s was he, when he was on the team leading up to that invincible season – uh, that was mm -hmm. a big moment for me, you know, watching that those Arsenal teams. Then um, Rivaldo was another player that I watched growing up. I think he was the that might have been the first soccer jersey I ever got was Rivaldo's. Um, so wow. those were some of the ones early on. But but growing up, being young, it was uh, like, again, you know, soccer, especially here in the United States. Um, and I'm sure you guys could attest to this. Well, you know, the comparison of the U.S. to Europe um, and for me growing up, Soccer just it wasn't it wasn't as prevalent as it was now. You know, there was no waking up and watching, you know, the Premier League every Saturday and Sunday morning. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, it was a lot of a lot of basketball, baseball. There was soccer, but mm -hmm. just not on kind of the national level that it is now. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, God, that Rivaldo jersey. I would love to get my hands on like an old. Oh, yeah. Jersey, <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. But yeah, so you've, um, you know, going back into coaching, uh, I was. I was fortunate enough to be under some of your sessions and, and really love them. A lot of um, Jamal's sessions, you know, it's very possession-based. It's a lot of movement-based. There's a lot of similarities to to Dutch soccer and things like this. Uh, Jamal, can you go into a little bit about how you formed your coaching philosophy and kind of like, you know, styles of play that you like to emulate or that you strive to get your players to play? Yeah, you know, I've been uh, fortunate to have some good soccer coaches growing up. You know, I definitely highlighted by Gene Ventriglia, uh, first and foremost, um, who really he was my first kind of soccer mentor. And I think he, he was the one who took me under his wings. Um, so, you know, like I said, I grew up in Highland playing town soccer here and him and his family really introduced me to, to travel soccer and kind of got me out of Highland and got me to to be able to see and experience different levels of soccer. Um, and with that, I think, is kind of the approach and the philosophy he had, which was uh, very possession based. You know, I, I still remember, you know, coming out of town soccer, being very young when everything was just kind of very direct. And it was just kind of like, you know, boot the ball down the field and people just running around <laughs> crazy, kicking it as hard as they could. And um, I still have, like I can still like hear parents from the sideline yelling some of these things that are still confusing to this day. Um, 
but so yeah so being able to get with gene and really he kind of took my game to the next level and and started to really um look at the game in more detail uh develop a philosophy which has always been possession based i mean so these are the things that i grew up on you know um, understanding first and foremost that if we have the ball, the other team doesn't have the ball. So doing everything mm-hmm. that we can um, to keep the ball once we have it, you know, very basic concepts of, you know, defensively being able to stay very compact, but offensively being able to then kind of find the space on the field, spread teams out, uh, keep the ball as much as possible. Um, so like I said, Gene was my main guy, uh, but really from there, I, I, I feel like I've, tried to be a sponge as much as possible in terms of soccer growing up, just trying to absorb as much as possible, um, whether it be, you know, the the couple of the soccer camps that I went to growing up. I really just felt like I always wanted to take a tiny piece of whatever coach or whoever I was talking to about the game. If I could take a tiny piece, you know, from from them and kind of incorporate it into what I wanted to do. Um, that's really always been my goal. Um, and and I think it's always centered around a possession style of soccer. Um, now that I've gotten a little bit older, um, and again with social media now, and having the ability to having the ability to go inside some of some professional coaches' training training facilities and see what they can do, and see the lingo and things that they talk about with their players, um, I do that kind of stuff all the time, you know. So so right now, currently. I think uh, it's safe to say that, you know, Pep Guardiola at City and, you know, Klopp at Liverpool, watching what these two guys have done with those clubs over the last, you know, handful of years has been just so impressive. And again, again, as a Liverpool fan, I, or I'm excuse, excuse me, as an Arsenal fan, I can, uh, I, I know I'm getting messed up over here, but as an Arsenal fan, I, I can, I can still appreciate, you know, good levels of soccer. And um, I love to just watch quality soccer. So whether it's, Liverpool, I think over the last two years, watching them play every weekend has been amazing. And and to watch mm-hmm. the things that Klopp has instilled and to watch the players that he's brought in. Um, and again, now in this year of 2020, where, we, you know, like they have YouTube channels and you have access to be able to see certain things that they can do. Um, I do that stuff all the time. So I'll be totally honest in saying that I'm a, it's cool to be able to see drills that they're doing with their, especially their first team players, and then try to bring them, you know, to our training sessions with Stockade um, and kind of see, you know, see how our guys can handle some of those things. So uh, it's, uh, those are the two that I'm, that I look at a lot right now, kind of in, in, in the game of soccer currently um, and try to pick up anything that I can from them, you know, whether, like I said, whether it's a training session or whether it's hearing them, even I, that's how I know I'm getting old is when I look forward to pre pregame pregame talks and you know post match conferences to kind of see what's inside the coach's head. Uh, I look at them almost as much as I'm watching the games now. So uh, definitely love to just kind of get anything I can from uh, from those two coaches specifically. And as a former player, you know sometimes when you when you are a player, you don't realize how much work goes into the coaching aspect of things. And now as Nat, you're a coach now, do you, have you found maybe a newfound respect for other coaches? Or maybe when you were growing up, you didn't realize how much went into it? Absolutely. You know, I'm glad you said that. And I think that the where I've noticed that the most has been, uh, has been with my stockade experience. Because uh, through the first three years of playing, it was really, I would, like I said, I, I was at the end of my soccer legs. And I was just loving every minute of being able to be a part of a, you know, a competitive team like that. So my mindset showing up to, to train or for games when I, when I was playing was really just about having fun. Like I, I was just looking to compete against these young dudes that they were bringing in and I was just having fun with it. It was like, you know, I get to play, I get to train twice a week. I get a game on the weekend. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to do this. So it was just like, hey, I'm going to show up and go as hard as I can, you know, and just run until the wheels fall off. Um, and that's, that was pretty much, you know, my mindset with that. Uh, now with the coaching aspect of it, uh, the the preparation of everything that goes into it, the the mental the mental fatigue uh, in between training sessions, in between games, is something that I um, I was not totally ready for, or just maybe didn't totally expect. I think I knew I would have it on some level, but um, it it was tough to shut off my brain. You know, there were 
many times uh, in that first season, uh, 2019, where, you know, I'd get home from a training session or get home from a game and um, my wife would kind of just look at me and just be like, hello, like, are you, are you here? Are you with us? <laughs> and I was mentally just like checked out somewhere, you know, thinking about thinking about the personnel decisions that we made, thinking about the training the night before, how we can, you know, make sure that we're getting it, you know, to the top level that we want. So uh, without a doubt, the, the mental the mental component to coaching, uh, the preparation that goes into it, um, I can say that I probably did overlook it a little bit. And uh, and we wanted to be successful. You know, that was the other thing is that as a player, I knew that I had quality players that were going to be coming in. So I, I felt like the pieces were there and it was going to be up to me and the staff, you know, to get these guys to get these guys to buy in um, and to, you know, get us to a championship level. Um and I thought I thought for the most part, we were able to do that. You know, we had a pretty good season. Um, I had a great coaching staff, which I think was able to uh, which was able to help me work through some of these mental things that I was struggling with. Um, but, yeah, the mental side of it was a uh, was definitely a challenge for sure. Yeah, and I think I think you I mean, you hit it spot on It's just the players also got to buy in. And I think that has so much to do with the coach they're playing for. I played for coaches. Um, you know, won't name any names, but I played for coaches where I just thought this, you know, this isn't going to work or, you know, this isn't, he's not, he doesn't have, he's not capturing the players. And I think, you know, having that coach and respecting that coach and, and really, you know, hearing his vision and, and his goals, I think is so much easier as a player to buy into, wouldn't you say? For sure. Yeah. And and I really that's what I tried to do. You know, I tried to take all my experience as a player uh, that, you know, the, the situations that that I thoroughly enjoyed, that I thought made me a better player, uh, made me a better teammate. Um, and even the you know, the situations as a player that I didn't like, I tried to learn from both of those and tried to, you know, incorporate um, a training session and an environment for our team that guys wanted to be a part of. You know, that that was my my mm -hmm. biggest um, my biggest thing that I thought about going into that first season was I want to create an environment that guys want to be a part of you know what I mean I think it was yeah. clear that we have it was the talent was there it's clearly talented players but I think when you have that when you have that when you're fortunate to have a group of talented players those are the kind of players that want to continue to get their game to the next level they want to be pushed you know they don't want to show up at a training session and just kind of you know go through the motions of things they really they want that high level competition. They want other guys there that want to get better. Um, and to be all in all honesty, guys that want to train, that truly enjoy it. So that was my only mindset was I wanted um, and kind of big picture for the club. That's what I want. I want anybody in this area who is close enough to potentially, you know, be a part of our team. I want it to be I want it to be a no brainer. I want it to be like, hey, if I'm here in the summer and I got something to do or and I'm looking for a team, you know, Stockade's the team that I want to be a part of because they do things the right way. They have players who buy in and it's a high atmosphere of guys who really care. Um, mm -hmm. And I think for the most part, like I said, we're only a year, a year into it. But um, I think that, uh, you know, you, you can you can get a good idea when you see guys. You know, I try to be very observant to the details of a training session, you know, not just when they're going through activities, but, you know, before a session, you know, how are guys showing up? You know, are they talking? Are they joking around? And same thing when they're leaving, you know, is it is it there that real kind of group uh, dynamic? And I think that mm -hmm. I think we were able to get that, you know, it can be tough given our given that the dynamic of the team is people from so many different areas that that, that the chemistry aspect can be tough sometimes. Um, but I think uh, I think we struck a good chord with that last year and something that uh, that I'm looking to, to build upon in the future for sure. You know, you were the best leader, the best captain that I've ever played with. And although underneath you as a as a player and you being my coach, um, you know, we only got to spend about I think it was a month. Uh, last summer, but you know it was really the same the same things, and I saw and you know really looking forward to the day that I can play with you again. Um, so it's just a great segue to get into just the role of leadership. You know, I knew playing for you and playing with you as a captain, I knew you were going to give everything to every game. I mean, vocally you were always talking, always uplifting, but you were stern when you needed to be. You know. Um, and just as a teammate and as a player for him, for you, you just really wanted to win for you. You know, it was just kind of like you were leading us into battle. And 
you know, I just think you have just a great aspect on what it takes to be a good leader. And can you go into that a little bit as, you know, both a coach and then as a captain, you know, how they're the same and how they may, they, how, how they may differ. So, yeah, first, you know, just, you know, thanking you, Dylan, for those kind words, you know, the, the, uh, levels of, of leadership and such are things that, uh, I've always taken extremely serious. Um, I think we've all been at some point in our life on talented teams where the talent was there and maybe we were lacking a little bit of leadership to really help get that talent to the level that it could reach. Um, and I think going through that at a young age is something that really stuck with me and something that I wanted to correct. So, um, having that voice, um, on a team, is something that I think all teams need just to get people on the same page to make sure that you're really kind of working towards those same goals. Um, a lot of times I think that leadership style is broken down, you know, into players who kind of lead by example and who players who are maybe a little bit more boisterous in the way that they lead. And for me, um, as a captain, as a leader, you know, when I was playing, I felt like I, I felt like I had to do both. You know, I felt like I had to do both um, at, at a level 10. I felt like I always had to be giving um, every ounce of my energy to set that example um, for players to look at, to kind of understand physically what it was going to take. And then from the, from the, from the voice side of it, being able to, uh, to make sure that everyone was on the same page, you know, and trying to achieve those goals. Um, I think the ability to communicate, you know, is really, a huge piece of leadership because while I may have the same kind of the same goal for everyone on the team, the same, everyone has the same goal and everyone has kind of the same, the same approach of where we're trying to get to. Sometimes I have to, or leaders have to be able to, to send that message differently. You know, I might be able to talk to you, Dylan, differently than I may have to relay a message to you, Sean. So that's been, I think, something that, that I've noticed that good leaders do is that they're able to give the same message, um, but in a little bit different way, depending on who their audience is that they're talking to. Um, and honestly, it's been, it's been the thing that it's been the challenge. One of my biggest challenges challenges in coaching is trying to take some of the leadership aspects that I think that I do well and trying to, trying to, uh, portray those onto my captains and onto my leaders. And, uh, at times it's been an easy transition, but at times it's been extremely challenging. Uh, and I think um, in my experience just in life with no matter what sport I'm playing, um, I think it's safe to say that some of those characteristics of leadership are really things that some people are just born with. You know, some people do them a lot easier than other people do. And that's not to say that they can't be taught, but I, I've come across some really good uh, some really good leaders who it just feels like it's just naturally what they do. You know what I'm saying? So again, in terms of me trying to play sponge, that's again, something that I've tried to incorporate um, into myself, you know, finding, finding the way that leaders are able to lead and lead by example, but also have those tough conversations when they need to be had um, and have those conversations. Um, but it's been a tough thing, man. I, I go back to my time at SUNY New Paltz um, when we had a couple different crops of, uh, of, of, incoming players and, and transitioning, you know, our captaincy from, from new, from old players to new players. And, uh, it was a challenge. It was a challenge. It's definitely something that sticks out in my head, something that I'm constantly, uh, constantly working at in terms of how I can portray some of those leadership qualities, uh, you know, to my players. Mm -hmm. And now with that, as like, it's almost part of the philosophy in a way, but you know, our, how do you feel or how do you try to get your players to become leaders on the team? You know, do you want them, like, do you take a back seat at times and let them kind of, you know, solve a few problems with the players in the field and let them, you know, figure it out and lead each other? Or are you trying to be, you know, the one voice in the team? You know, I feel like as a coach, it makes it your job very easy when you have a number of players that can lead the group. Yeah. So I think that, you know, the voices within a team, um, can be can be interesting because I think that while yes the head coach does have kind of the last say and is the main voice of a squad it's important it's important I think for players to have their own voices and also be able to kind of police some of the things that they can take care of you know what I'm saying so if I can have a captain of my team who um, 
who has a real pulse of the squad and he can recognize, you know, maybe a conflict between a couple players and he can point it out and kind of address it with the players in the heat of the moment. You know, I, I want to be able to empower my leaders and my captains to be able to handle the things that they can handle. And if it's something that gets to a level where they're not comfortable with it um, or a level that they feel like has just reached a point where then it needs to come to a, to a conversation with a coach or a coaching staff, then we'll kind of go through those lines. But I want I want my captains to be able to see things and address them head on. Um, those are things that I look to do as a captain when I was a player. And I feel like there were definitely times where I was able to maybe have a couple conversations with guys and maybe, you know, get to it before it was something that could fester, before it was even something that a coaching staff needed to deal with. And we were able to work it out, you know, and, th- and things were okay. Um, so th- there's a fine line with that. And I, you know, I think a lot of that is kind of gauging your team and gauging your leaders. Um, because there is, while the head coach is the main voice, I think there's definitely, th- there has to be room, you know, for guys to be able to have their voices within a team and within a locker room as well. You know, the thing about Jamal is that he was always a leader. He's a, you know, people gravitate towards him because he, he has great leadership qualities. It's a very critical point in our lifetime. Uh, regarding race and the need for equality, uh, massive movement going across the world. And we know that we need to speak out as well. Uh, we're a growing platform, but you know we need to take a stand and amplify the voices that need to be heard. Uh, Jamal is someone I've always looked up to since I've known him. And you know, as we stand with you and take charge and responsibilities, we're constantly learning. And racism is really no stranger to sports. Athletes experience it daily i mean you hear you hear stories in in professional football um you know it's italy there's been a ton england there's been a ton um but behind the professional scene we don't hear too much about it and you know i I think there's still a need to recognize and change it and you know i'm not i'm not too too sure on what your experiences have been with it but if there has been any um and you wouldn't mind touching on you know things that you've seen, um, whether it being growing up in youth sports or in university or in the semi-pro as a, as a player or a coach, if there's anything that you've kind of experienced and, you know, think that people should be more aware of. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, these are uh, definitely, definitely some tough conversations, you know, but uh, like you said, these are definitely conversations that need to be had. Um, you know, I feel like when this, when this pandemic first started, I I found myself starting lots of conversations with, uh, you know, these are crazy times we're in, or, you know, these are unprecedented times. And then, and then all of this, uh, this racial dynamic has now taken over. And I think we can all say at even a different level that these are, you know, unprecedented times that we're in, um, it's, uh, on a personal level, um, I'll just start by saying it has definitely been, you know, an emotional roller coaster of the last few weeks. Uh, it's been emotionally draining to kind of watch um, how this has all played out. Um, it definitely makes me reflect uh, on some of the personal situations that I've been through in my life. Kind of on a personal note, you know, uh, so I am uh, biracial. Uh, my father's African American. My mother is Polish American. Um, so the idea, I guess, of race is something that has been a part of my being, you know, forever. Um, and definitely um, encountered levels of racism um, throughout my life. And, uh, you know, despite despite being 50% white, you know, my, my whiteness per se does not follow me, you know, into a room or into a situation. So um, growing up in America as a black male um, has definitely been challenging, has definitely been things that I have faced since a young age um, that have been tough to deal with, you know, and uh, to to put it kind of on the athletic kind of spectrum, yeah, there were levels of racism that I dealt with at a young age, some that I can still, you know, think back to pretty vividly, you know, on the soccer field, you know, being called the N-word, being called this and that, being spit at, this wow. and that. Um, so there were definitely elements of that that uh, 
that I grew up with. Uh, they didn't happen all the time. You know, it's not something that I dealt with, you know, all the time, every game, anything like that. But though when they happen, uh, there are things that uh, they affect you. You know, they're things that you don't get out of your head. Um, so, again, I feel fortunate to have, you know, a strong, you know, support system and, and you know, great family um, who I was able to kind of have conversations with growing up that I think that allowed me to deal with it you know, in a positive way. Um, but you're right. You know, I think that uh, athletics in general, the sports world, I think does reflect a lot of a lot of reality and a lot of what society goes through as well. Um, so there are levels of racism, I think, that we see in sports the same way we see them in, you know, our regular walks of life. And, you know, some of the some of the examples, you know, Dylan, you know, that you brought up, you know, across the the world of soccer, you know, from Italy to England, there are still many different, you know, racist situations that are occurring, you know, currently um, that professional players, professional athletes, soccer players have to deal with. Um, when you look at the NFL and you look at, you know, again, the NFL, you know, predominantly, predominantly black athletes, um, no black ownership, I think a couple GMs, um, they've instituted, you know, a Rooney rule and attempted to to twerk it here and there to combat, you know, the fact that there are no African-Americans at higher levels in the NFL. So it's definitely, you know, something that's going on with them. And obviously with the conversations with Colin Kaepernick and the flag and everything else for the last few years, I mean, race has has, has been in conversations dealing with the NFL. You look at the NBA and you look at, you know, the owner of the Clippers, the Clippers from a few years back and all the racist comments and everything that, that he was making and eventually had his team kind of taken from him. Um, and you look at the uh, some of the social stances that a lot of the NBA players have taken. It's definitely something that's on their mind as well. Um, and even, you know, as as very currently um, in the situation we're in now with NASCAR, you know, that's a NASCAR banning Confederate flags at their events. Um that's a big deal, I think. You know what I mean? Being around sports my entire life, and I've, I'll be honest and say that you know NASCAR has never been something that I've been you know really into. But recognizing there there were Confederate flags, you know, all over kind of their institution was you know not something that you know I didn't feel bad at all about not wanting anything to do with NASCAR. Right. So the the fact that they've been able to to take those stances now, and you know, I look at somebody, and again, I don't know a lot about NASCAR at all, but I've I've been following Bubba Wallace um, recently and just I, the courage of somebody like him in the world of NASCAR for him, for Bubba Wallace to stand up and kind of, you know, be the voice of reason, reasoning and, and to be using his platform to affect change. And the fact that it that it's happening in that sport, I think, is uh, it's really amazing, to be totally honest. Um so you're right. I mean, it's a it's a uh, sports are a reflection of society and vice versa. Um, I will tell you that uh, there are times in in these last few weeks where I've had some in-depth conversations with some of my good friends recently um, about some of these, you know, similar topics. And and we were, I guess, on, on some level, I guess, wanting wanting almost to like challenge some of the top, you know, um, some of the top black athletes in their sports to, I think players, we want is, I guess the long story, I, I'm kind of rambling as you can see, but I want, I wish that some of our top athletes um, use their platform a little bit more than, than they do. You know, I think that, I think that some of them do use their platform. I think these are uncomfortable conversations. So some of them may not be comfortable kind of voicing some of the concerns and the thing, some of the things that they're thinking about. But I think that um, I think that African American athletes, when you look at the NFL, you look at the NBA, I think that they 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 hold, whether better or for worse, they hold an important spot within the society. They have so many eyes on them. They have so much of the youth looking at them that part of me w wishes that they that they would be more boisterous in some of the things that they're doing. Um, and I know some of them are out there doing things. I, I think I just look at it as a as on, on like a much larger scale. And I will say that um, 
I was grateful to see. I haven't looked. I haven't read the entire article yet, but to to take a, an athlete like LeBron James and to understand the platform and, that he has and the audience that he has and the way that people look at him and revere him, I was very excited to see an article the other day that he was attempting to put together um, some sort of group across the major cities of the United States with some major athletes um, to help really spread the word about getting. Um, you know, young black people registered to vote um, and getting them mm-hmm. to understand kind of how voter suppression is happening, how they can recognize it and kind of the steps to combat it. So when I saw that, I was really encouraged. Um, I believe it was LeBron, Trey Young and uh, Jalen Rose, I think were the first three names that I saw. Um, so that was something that I was really encouraged by, because I think that's what we need. You know, I think we need we need some of these people with these large platforms um, to help push some of these initiatives. And I think sports can really be a reflection um, of what we can accomplish. You know, if we can look at what, what happens within sports and, and translate some of that to society and to, and to the outside world, I think they could learn a lot of things from, um, from, what, from what goes on in locker rooms and the dynamics of teams and people coming together to make things happen. Um, I think a lot can be learned from that. Yeah, I totally agree. So- to, to touch on your on your point of athletes using their platforms and, you know, being uncomfortable, I think it stretches to people too, just regular people. I think people are afraid to have conversations because they think, oh, I'm not an expert on this topic. Um, when in reality, I think that's, you know, doing more harm than good because you're constantly going to learn and you're never going to be, you know, a complete expert on these things. I think they're so encompassing and so so deep that there's always more to learn and there's always more to hear. And even touching back on your earlier point of being a sponge, I think, you know, of course we want to sit back and soak in and we, you know, we need to learn, but I do, as you said, I think we need to be using platforms and be, and be speaking about these conversations more to really instruct that change and just get people more knowledgeable on the issues. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. And it is this is um, I don't really know. There's so many layers to these conversations that it's almost uh, yeah. it's almost impossible to think that there is, you know, one sort of expert who knows all of this stuff. You know what I mean? And I think you're exactly spot on in what you were saying that these are the conversations that elicit some of that education and some of that learning to happen. Um, and the worst thing we could do is not have the conversations. Um, I can tell you, I, I've had some. uh I've had some people reach out to me over the last, you know, two weeks or so. Um, some of my white friends, to be totally honest, um, throughout the years, a couple of players that I coached, a couple of coworkers that I had, um, and some of them kind of offering words of support. Some of them kind of wanting to engage in conversation. Some of them asking some questions. And um, that's, you know, that's where it starts. You know what I mean? Is like those are the conversations that need to continue. Um, the last thing that we can let happen is to have these conversations stop. You know what I mean? And I, I, and even me personally, you know, I feel like there's, there's parts of this that, you know, I wanted to voice and wanted to kind of get off my chest. Um, but it's tough sometimes, you know, sometimes it's just, it's just, it's overwhelming, you know, and, and the idea of, I think, knowing that change needs to happen and, asking yourself, you know, how can I be a part of change? You know, and I know me personally, I have, you know, like I think of this as a, on a much, much larger level, you know, nationally or even globally. And the one message that I've tried to, that I've really tried to reiterate to the people that I've spoken to in the last couple of weeks is if we can enact kind of the, uh, the adage of thinking globally while acting locally, I think that if we can do that, I think that it's something that can help us be a part of the big change we want. You know what I mean? So no matter what it is that you do, you do in your day, you know, however you go about your day, wherever you are in the world, whoever you see, whoever you come encounter with, that's kind of your local, that's your personal. And I feel like it's up to us on that individual level to recognize, you know, racist things that may be going out and have the confidence to look them in their face, call them out. And, and, and do what you can to stop it in that moment. And I think that if we can all do that on a local and personal level, um, that hopefully we can all be a part of the change kind of globally and nationally that we want to, uh, 
that we want to see take place. I mean, to use the team adage, you know, like every, no matter what team you're on, everybody's got a role to play. You know what I'm saying? And I think that in this regard, it's the exact same thing. You know, we need, we need people at a, at a national, at a global and a national level, being able to articulating and being able to put up legislation that will really help the communities that, that are affected. Uh, we need, you know, grassroots organizations being able to help spread the word and build a coalition of people um, to all be on the same page. And I think, you know, again, individually, we can all be going about, you know, our days calling out the things that we see, um, supporting people around us who may be, you know, going through some of these tough times. So we, we all have a role to play. Um, and I think that, uh, that's been my message, you know, because it is, this is an overwhelming thought, like all of this is overwhelming, you know, I think because there's just so many, there's so many different levels of it. And I think when you have one conversation, you know, it leads into another conversation. Um, and we find ourselves realizing that so many of these things are interconnected, you know, on some level. Um, so Mm -hmm. I think the, that's the overwhelmingness of it. And I think if we can, that's at least been my approach to people I've talked to is, with it being overwhelming, let's get back to the things that we have control over. And you have control over the things that you do in your day. So, you know, do the things you can on a personal level. I'm going to do them. And if we can all do them, then, you know, hopefully we can be a part of the change that we want to see happen. But uh, these conversations are things that need to happen. You know what I'm saying? So I think another great example, just to say, like when with the Drew Brees situation that came out, you know, he made a couple comments that I thought were were insensitive as well, given everything that was going on. And then it was very obvious that some of his players and other athletes kind of checked him with, with what they had to say. Um, and I, again, I don't know Drew Brees from anybody. I've never met him. You know, I follow sports. He seems to be a pretty good dude on and off the field. And I think sometimes you have to allow people um, sometimes to make a mistake um, and still be able to learn from it. So I think some of that dialogue and those conversations that happen amongst his teammates and amongst Drew Brees, those are the conversations that need to continue. Those are the things that need to continue happening. Um, Again, without knowing anybody in that situation personally, I'd imagine those were some tough conversations. And I'd imagine, you know, Drew Brees having to go home to his family probably had some more tough conversations that he had to have. And this now is not the time for anybody to shy away from it. Um, now is the time to to be engaged, um, to speak your piece, to support the people around you, um, and uh, and be on the right side of history. You know what I mean? So much of this, I really think, is just a right and a wrong issue, um, and we need to confront it. And that's been, I guess, the last piece I'll say in that is that that's been the one the hopeful piece that I've taken away from all of this is to to see the demonstrations and everything. That are going on across the nation and at this point across the globe is that it's such a diverse group of people you know what i mean it's white people it's black people it's asian people like it's people from all different walks of life that um are willing to stand up at this point and have their voices be heard so i'm hopeful like i said that these things will continue that the conversations go on and hopefully they lead to uh they lead to some just action that needs to be taken for sure Absolutely. And these conversations, like you said, they have to happen. They're uncomfortable because no one has the solution, the grand solution to solve this. And that's why, you know, it's uncomfortable to have these conversations because people don't know. But if you never have them, nothing will be, you're not going to learn anything. Nothing will be solved. And and like you said, with thinking locally, those little 1% changes, you know, if everyone makes a little change here and there, those add up. And globally, that can make a huge, a huge change in the world. You know, and, and Dylan had brought up something. I mean, Dylan, you want to touch on that systemic level of how the, the you know, in America we pay to play. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've been, you know, just trying to learn and research and, you know, in preparing for this episode, I kind of wanted to learn more about, you know, the levels of that, that race really plays, especially in youth sports. And I think one that may be overlooked is this whole pay to play system that, you know, is, is around in America. And, you know, Sean and I having, you know, traveled and played in different places, we see that the, the system is completely different, especially in Europe. Um, you know, in America, just to bring up some stats, uh, almost 46% of, of young black children under the age of six live in poverty. And you compare that to 14.5% of white children that live in poverty. Now, 
you know, youth soccer, uh, for those of you who don't know, is called pay to play. And it differs in that, you know, you pay a registration cost and the registration cost is usually pretty steep. So, you know, especially in, in inner cities and such, you're missing out on so much talent and so much black talent that, you know, may not be able to afford these teams. And I think systematically, that's one thing that we overlook in sports and especially in soccer is that we're not giving the same opportunities, especially when children are young to perform and play the sports and play at the competitive levels that they, you know, they can really reach. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is the piece that, uh, this is the piece that, again, I, we've watched, we've watched, I think this game of soccer, you know, evolve in the United States over some time. And there's, while there has been a lot of um, progress that has been made, um, these conversations are the ones that I think um, are the most important uh, because again, soccer is the world's game. You know, it's a beautiful, it's the beautiful game. It's the game that's played, you know, by more people um, than any other sport in the country or in the world. And we are in a lot of cases, we're not tapping into all of those spots in this country from where these players can be. Um, so the level of exposure being able to give these play, find these players and give them platforms to play um, would be huge in terms of us continuing to develop this sport. Um, it is. It's depressing to think about, you know, so many of these different um, leagues and clubs and things that happen across the country where, you know, families are forced to shell out, you know, a few thousand dollars a year for their kids to be a part of a team. Um, and there's so many players that just simply don't have that access. And I think mm -hmm. that, as a as a as a founding body of soccer in the United States, um, those are the communities that we need to be tapping into. Those are the communities that we need to to be shedding light on and creating platforms for players um, to be able to come out of. You know, and I think um, it's there again. There's a lot of layers to this conversation as well, and I I can say that I'm very very glad to be a part of. Um, another reason why I'm just glad to be a part of Stockade is because these are the things that, that our administration is thinking about, you know, and Dan Hafe, who I know, you know, Dylan, our technical director, he's been huge in trying to set up, you know, this youth component um, to Stockade Football Club and based mm -hmm. around the idea of trying to eliminate that pay, that pay for play and trying to simply get kids in the door and simply give them an opportunity to help them. Um, first of all, see if they like the game, you know what I mean? Just to give them an opportunity yeah. to see if it's something that they like. Yeah. And if it is, you know, giving them the opportunity and the platform to help to grow and progress and take their game to the next level, because it is, there's no reason why in a country of, you know, what, 330 million people, you know, we should be able to be competing at a higher level more consistently um, than we have been in terms of, in terms of our national team. And I think that how do we how do we help that ball get continue that ball rolling forward? It's these grassroots organizations. And it's why, again, I'm just so grateful to be part of this club. Uh, Dennis Crowley, our owner, has pretty much written uh, he's written kind of a template of how he put together our team, everything that goes into it. Um, so that other teams around the nation can really look at it and uh, who may be interested in starting a club and kind of use ours as a template to help continue to, to, to grow the game. Cause that's what we're all about here. You know, I think that the, our, the major idea around, um, around stockade was about continuing to grow the game. I mean, that was Dennis's philosophy was how do we continue to grow the game so that we can compete internationally for a world cup sometime down the road. And the way that we can do that is investing in the youth. Yeah, so Stockade really is on the forefront of this and tackling these issues and, you know, helping in, in, in areas that can really, you know, inspire some change. And, you know, I'm not sure if you know, um, but is there any way that, you know, we can, we or our listeners really can, can support Stockade's, you know, grassroots organizations of, of kind of eliminating this pay to play? Yeah, well, I would definitely direct everyone to our website, uh, stockadefc.com. There's tons of information, the history of the club, everything that we're about. Um, there's really a lot of information, so definitely check it out. Um, but I would, um, I would say, I believe that there would be. You know, I know we're always looking for donations um, and some some um, sponsorships potentially to help put on some of these events for some of these uh, for some of the youth organizations that we work with. 
Um, so definitely, you know, if anyone is interested in helping out, there's definitely contact information on the website. Um, reach out to us and, uh, you know, we'd love to, uh, we'd love to get you involved. Amazing. And yeah, with, with these episodes, we'll, we'll post some links for you guys that can help out. And, uh, you know, like, like Jamal said, these, these little, you know, changes can really add up and, you know, stockade. Yes. Being in upstate New York is, is, it's not going to solve everything and pay to play. But we see how this works. It's going to inspire some other organizations to do the same. And, you know, that's that's all we can ask. And it's great to see Stockade really on the forefront. It's a club that I was am still very proud to represent and, you know, talk about in, in great light. And, you know, it's amazing stuff, really. I mean, this, is, this was not planned, you know, talking about this pay to play and how we've been over the world and that that's not how it is, but it's glad to, I'm, I'm glad to hear that stockade is, as a, is already doing that. Yeah. You know, again, it's, um, you know, everything, the soccer aspect of the club is great and it is, it's good to be on the forefront of a club and with an owner who is, uh, who is forward thinking and wanting to continue to, to progress and kind of move the needle. Um, so it is, I'm very lucky and fortunate to be a part of the club and, um, Again, I got jerseys for both you guys whenever you're ready to come make the make the transition, all right? Oh yeah. Sean, they some <laughs> they some nice jerseys too, man. They are some nice jerseys, I must say. The fan <laughs> man too. Stockade experience. I mean, just experiencing that after after college playing with Jamal, like you said, in front of a thousand fans, man, was just like sick. What an so what sick. an opening to, to to you know, to a career after college. It's amazing and Anyone within the area or even, you know, outside of the area that, you know, wants to come come east, Stockade, man. It's it's a great place to learn and grow and, you know, really get a nice taste of of that, you know, professional style with all these fans and, and the trainings and everything. It's great. So, Jamal, thank you so much for coming on. Um, you know, like we said, these are these are uncomfortable conversations, but they're conversations that need to happen. And it was amazing to hear about your story and you know, your thought process as a leader, as a captain, as a coach. Um, and, you know, I'm sure we'll have you on again because, like you said, there's there's so much more we can talk about, so much more we can get into football, soccer-wise, and, you know, outside of soccer. So, again, thank you so much, Jamal. And, I, you know, I can't wait to lace up the boots with you again. Looking forward to it, man. Thank you guys for giving me this platform. And, uh, you know, it's been great to follow you guys and look forward to continuing to follow your journey. And uh, again, anytime you guys are in the area, um, you know, Dylan, you know, you're a part of the Stockade family and Sean, well, we're bringing you on board now too, man. So thank you guys. <laughs> new, new recruit. <laughs> yeah, very nice meeting you, Jamal. It was a great conversation. Um, you know, and we definitely would look forward to having you back on. I would love to do it again in the future for sure. Good luck with all of the things you guys are doing playing wise and with this podcast. And uh, I'd love to join you guys again in the future, man. You guys be safe. Right, Thank you, you man. man. You too. Better to have a short life that is full of what you like doing than a long life spent in a miserable way.